Well, it's lovely to be, to be here again with you and with my friends of the Christian Institute. And I'm particularly pleased to be able to give you, to speak to you tonight about C.S. Lewis because he was the man whose work was responsible for me becoming a Christian. I used to be a very strong atheist. And if you had told me when I was up at Oxford that there would come days when I would be um, addressing Christian audiences about Christianity, I think I would have had a heart attack. I think the best place to start in talking about C.S. Lewis, I, I shall be sometimes quoting from, from my book um, that I had published in 1996 by Carriage Press. Unfortunately, I, I rang the publishers, they're... they're well, I suppose I ought to say, fortunately, it's all sold out. There aren't any copies left. Whether they do a reprint, I don't know. But I think the best way to begin in talking about C.S. Lewis is to begin by mentioning his obituary. He died in 1963, interestingly enough, on the 22nd of November, the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated and Aldous Huxley died. Rather tragic day, November the 22nd. 1963. On his death in 1963, the Times obituary on C.S. Lewis described him as one of the great lay preachers of our time. As a Christian writer, his influence was marked. He made religious books bestsellers and, in a nice sense, fashionable. Today, 30 years later, the popularity of C.S. Lewis's works has, if anything, grown. Despite Lewis's own pessimistic prediction that no one would read his books after he had been dead five or six years, nearly everything he wrote is still in print, much of it available in several languages. And his works, according to one American scholar, Professor Lyle Dorset, sell better today than during his lifetime. Not only do his own writings sell extremely well, but, adds Professor Dorset, Books about C.S. Lewis find a ready market too. Indeed, since his death, almost 60 books have been written and edited on Lewis's life and work. Hundreds of magazine and journal articles have appeared and almost 150 masters and doctoral dissertations have been prepared on this author. In fact, the number of books now is 70 written about him. So his fame and popularity was extraordinary and is extraordinary still. But what is also interesting about Lewis is his range. He wrote poetry, he wrote science fiction, he wrote works of popular theology, he wrote academic works uh, on English literature, he wrote, for example, the um, Oxford History of English Literature in the 16th century. And also he had an extraordinary capacity for reaching very different kinds of people. And I'd like to give um, an example of that. Um, he used to, when he, he, he was a, an Oxford Don, as many of you will know, um, for most of his life, and then he was made um, professor of Re Renaissance and medieval literature um, at the University of Cambridge. And so he used to, because he still lived in Oxford, he used to commute regularly between Oxford and Cambridge. And since he didn't drive, he had a taxi driver who used to take him between Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, by the way, I'm glad to say, uh, tell you, living near Oxford, that the, apparently the railway line between Cambridge and Oxford is being reopened. So you'll be able to travel between Oxford and Cambridge and visit all the second-hand bookshops 
um, within 24-hour period, which is something I intend to do uh, soon. Anyway, in, Ho in Hooper and Green's biography of C.S. Lewis, an example is recorded of Lewis's talent for face-to-face -face communication in the most unlikely situations. Quote, Clifford Morris, whose taxi he had been accustomed to hire whenever he needed transport, writes, I shall always consider myself fortunate to have been included in his circle of friendship. He was never an intellectual snob, and he was willing to talk to anyone on any subject. I have been with him in the company of Oxford and Cambridge professors, and I have overheard some of their conversation, conversation that I was totally unable to understand or share. And I have also been with him, sitting in the middle of a crowd of lorry drivers in a transport caff, while he enthralled them with his wit and conversational powers. After one of these occasions, one of the men came to me and said, Hey, mate, who's the governor? And when I told him, he expressed surprise and said, Blimey, he's a toff, he is. A real nice bloke. It's a rather nice little anecdote about C.S. Lewis's capacity for communicating with very different kinds of people. And, of course, the other important thing about him is his relevance today. And his relevance, the relevance of C.S. Lewis, is that he, above all others, has shown and shows the rationality of Christian belief, that believing in God and believing in Christ and believing in the gospel is rational. It is in accordance with reason. And it's the atheists, it's the unbelievers who are irrational and who do not have the truth on their side. Now, I want to spend most of my time talking about his thought, but I will, first of all, just mention some relevant facts about his life and character. He was born, he was a he was, a, he was an Ulsterman. He was born in Belfast in 1898. He had highly intellectual parents. His father was a um, brilliant speaker in the local literary society. And his mother, Lewis's mother, was a brilliant mathematician and logician. So he had intellectual parents and um, a pleasant middle-class home background um, in what, of course, would have been uh, late Victorian and early Edwardian England. And he loved books. He loved the countryside, he loved long walks, and he loved big old houses. Um, and as a rather nice uh, extract from his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about the influence on his whole being of having lived in a, in a huge old Edwardian house full of books. As he put it, I am a product of long corridors, empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, Attics explored in solitude, distant noises of gurgling cisterns and pipes, and the noise of wind under the tiles. Recollections woven into one of his famous Narnian chronicles, The Magician's Nephew. So he loved books, he loved the countryside, he had intellectual parents, and as a child in a book, in a, in a house full of books, he learned to read and to love reading, and he particularly learned to love fairy tales, myths, legends. He, he, he writes that when he was very young, he heard the horn, he suddenly heard the horns of Elfland. So he had a very happy childhood. But at the age of 10, his whole world uh, was darkened irretrievably because the mother whom he adored died suddenly when he was only 10. So he had an early experience of unhappiness, suffering and insecurity. And uh, 
This is what he says about the loss of his mother, who died, as result, uh, who died from cancer. With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. The sudden and unexpected blow of his mother's death, like the introduction of a new and sombre movement in a symphony, inevitably darkened Lewis's outlook on the world, a process subsequently reinforced by his unhappy experience of boarding school, first at a prep school in Hertfordshire, which he called Belson, and whose cruel headmaster was eventually certified as insane, and then at Malvern at that time, uh, 1913, 1914, a very traditional public school whose life and ethos was typically uncongenial to a bookish intellectual like Lewis who had no interest in or aptitude for games or sport. As he stated many years later in an address given to the undergraduates of Magdalen College, Oxford at the beginning of the Second World War, perhaps because I had not a very happy boyhood, I am too familiar with the idea of futility to feel the shock of it so sharply as a good speaker on the subject ought to. He had been asked to give a talk on futility at the beginning of the war and unhappiness and evil. So he says he was too familiar with the idea of futility to feel the shock of it. Familiarity, in fact, with the idea of futility and the notion that we are alone in an indifferent or even hostile universe both contributed to the development of Lewis's own atheistic views as a young man and enabled him, through personal experience and imaginative sympathy, to understand the outlook and emotions of the unbelieving and irreligious audiences who were the targets of his subsequent apologetic writings in defense of theism and Christianity. And he meant a lot to me because, although my mother didn't die when I was 10, I lost my father when I was 17. And that was a fairly shattering uh, experience because I loved him very much. And one of the things I found about C.S. Lewis is that reading his work, I was following in the footsteps of a person who had known all my questions and problems and perplexities. It's amazing. I remember when I was becoming a Christian in 1976, turning over the pages of book after book that he had written, and I would say to myself, it's all very well saying this, but what about X? And I would turn over the page. It's all very well saying this, but what about X? It's an extraordinary experience. Not only did C.S. Lewis know all about unhappiness, insecurity when he was very young, but he also had an early experience of the evil in human nature, of fallen human nature. And again, this comes from his school days. Uh, and again, if I can quote from my book, Lewis's unhappy memories of boarding school life, especially his experience of bullying and persecution, also taught him to distrust what he would later recognize as fallen human nature and opened his eyes to the perils and problems of power, in particular to the corrupting effects on human character of the worldly desire to be on the inside, in the know, part of some inner ring, an appetite fed by pride and snobbery which he fiercely denounced in later life. As he put it in an unpublished article criticising the naive views of Professor Haldane, 
a famous British scientist and Marxist of the 1940s who thought capitalism was the root of all evil, Lewis wrote this. The difference between us is that the professor sees the world purely in terms of those threats and those allurements which depend on money. I do not. The most worldly society I have ever lived in is that of schoolboys. Most worldly in the cruelty and arrogance of the strong, the toadyism and mutual treachery of the weak, and the unqualified snobbery of both. Nothing was so base that most members of the school proletariat wouldn't do it or suffer it to win the favour of the school aristocracy. Hardly any injustice too bad for the aristocracy to practice. But the class system did not in the least depend on the amount of anyone's pocket money. Who needs to care about money if most of the things he wants will be offered by cringing civility and the remainder can be taken by force? This lesson has remained with me all my life. That is one of the reasons why I cannot share Professor Haldane's exaltation at the banishment of mammon from, quote, a sixth of our planet's surface, in other words, the Soviet Union. I have already lived in the world from which mammon was banished. It was the most wicked and miserable I have yet known. Now, as a result of these experiences, he lost, he was losing his early sense of God, whatever he had absorbed about God as a young child. And he left Malvern. His father could see that he wasn't happy. And he instead uh, was sent off to Sussex to live with a tutor, a great uh, man called William T. Kirkpatrick, who'd been the headmaster of a school in uh, Northern Ireland, and who was a rationalist. In fact, Lewis's tutor, um, William T. Kirkpatrick, was a lapsed Presbyterian. Apparently, the, all, that was, all that remained of his Presbyterianism was that when he did his gardening on a Sunday, he wore his best suit. But that was all, that was all that remained of Lewis's, of the Presbyterianism of Lewis's rationalist tutor. But he says that, that what, he learnt, what his tutor taught him was to think. He was never allowed to get away with an assertion that he couldn't defend in argument. So his education before he went up, before he took the examinations to get into Oxford... Um, taught him to think. And he, he writes in his autobiography that the house of his rationalist tutor was covered, saturated with, paper, with pamphlets, the pamphlets of the Rationalist Association, um, all very anti-Christian and anti-God. So he imbibed all this literature and he also learned to think. And so as a young man and as a young Oxford don, he was an atheist. And he was basically an atheist for three reasons. First of all, because... He was acutely aware of evil and suffering, and how could there be evil and suffering in the world if the world is supposed to be made by and presided over by a benevolent and loving God? Secondly, Lewis believed that the story of Christ in the Gospels was just another pagan myth, because one of the interesting things about pagan religion is that there are so many myths about a dying and rising God, <coughs> myths usually associated with the cycle of the seasons with agriculture, with the rebirth of spring. So it seemed to him that the story of Christ and the Gospels was just another pagan myth. And then thirdly, he thought that science had discredited belief in the supernatural. Well, I'm not going to say more at this stage about his life. He was eventually converted to Christianity uh, at the end of the 1920s and during the 1930s. 
Um, he became established as an Oxford... By the way, he was a brilliant man, of course. He got a triple first in, in literature, English literature, classics, and philosophy. He was a brilliant debater and speaker. And during the war, of course, he um, gave those famous broadcast talks on Christianity, which um, are now exist in paperback in the book Mere Christianity, which were originally a series of talks during the war. And after the, during the war, he wrote his first science fiction book, uh, books, uh, Out of the Silent Planet and Voyage to Venus. And then in the 1950s, he became famous, of course, as the writer of those wonderful children's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and he died in 1963. But what I want to talk about, really, most of the time, is to look at why did Lewis abandon atheism? Why did C.S. Lewis abandon atheism and embrace Christianity? And it's worth looking at that because it, it can help us as Christians to know, to get some handle on how to talk to and witness to atheists, to people who do not believe in God at all, let alone um, Christ or the truth of the Gospels. And I, and I think this is a, an important issue because our culture is much more atheistic than it used to be. Um, in America, for example, where the Christian presence is much stronger in American culture, 90% of, of all American scientists, members of the National Academy of Science in America, 90% of them are atheists. I should think most scientists in this country are atheists, and the number of people in, among the general population of Britain who consider themselves to be atheists, according to a recent survey, is about a third of the population. So anyone who, know, who can find a way of addressing the problem of atheism and showing atheists that actually there is a God and they ought to be open-minded to the preaching of the gospel is somebody who needs to be listened to and learnt from. Well, the first point Lewis... Lewis um, uh, uh, first reason Lewis abandoned atheism was that its, its attitude to the problem of evil is contradictory. Uh, atheists argue can, there cannot be a God because of the existence of evil and suffering. But how do we judge that there is suffering in the world, that suffering is evil, that there is evil in the world? What is the standard of value by which we condemn, by which we decide that so much of what goes on in the world and what we see around us is evil? And Lewis basically argued you can only have two attitudes to this. Either you can say our sense of right and wrong our feeling that the world is evil, that there's this suffering that makes the existence of God unlikely. Either we, we believe in the cogency of our accusation against God, we believe in this moral law that is on our hearts, that is pointing out to us everything that's wrong in the world, and then getting us to use that as an argument against God. Either we believe in moral values, in right and wrong, in our sense of good and evil, as something that's objective and true, or we don't. If we don't believe that this is objective, then we have no grounds for saying there is no God because our attitude to evil is purely subjective. But if evil is a real objective evil, if there really is something wrong with the universe, with the world, with the way people behave, then where does this standard of right and wrong come from? And Lewis argued, of course, it comes from, it comes from God. He basically said if God made our minds... God made the universe, he made our minds. If he made our minds, he made the standard of right and wrong that we find in it. So he wrote um, on this subject of atheism, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, 
I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, of right and wrong, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So atheism contradicts itself on the problem of evil because it cannot explain why we have this sense of right and wrong inside us. And all the attempts that atheists make to explain away our, our sense of right and wrong, this moral law we find written in our hearts, doesn't, don't, won't stand up to argument. One view is that, oh, well, our sense of right and wrong, good and evil, is just an instinct. But the problem is our instincts are often in conflict. If you walk past, uh, if you're on some cold winter day, you're walking past the lake, and you suddenly see a child has fallen into this lake, and there's a lot of ice on the lake, uh, you will immediately have two instincts. One is to jump in and rescue the child, and the other is not to jump in because you might die of cold or sink under the ice. But your moral sense is that thing inside you that tells you to follow the instinct to save the child and to resist the instinct for self-preservation. So something that enables you to choose between your conflicting instincts can't be another instinct. Secondly, another argument that uh, many atheists put, put up is that, oh, well, um, our sense of right and wrong is just something that's evolved. It's, it's necessary for survival, and so evolution favors moral attitudes and um, people with, a, with a, a strong moral sense. But that's obvious nonsense, because um, we know that so much of human existence and history is just the law of the jungle. The prizes go to those who are ruthless and powerful. It's not the people who are the best people morally who necessarily get on in life or have got on in history. Most of history is a story of war, tyranny, bloodshed, oppression, small minorities dominating uh, uh, majorities and exploiting them for all they're worth. So one can't, it's not credible to say that our sense of right and wrong, good and evil, is somehow something that evolution has favoured because it helps our survival. Another a possible alternative explanation to the Christian one for morality is that, well, it's for the good of society. The reason we mustn't tell lies or steal or commit adultery is because it's bad for society. But that leaves open the question is, why should we care, why should we care for the good of society? In fact, that argument goes in circles. Oh, you, ought, you shouldn't lie because it's not good for society. Well, why should I care about society? Well, because society consists of all these individuals whom you hurt if you lie and cheat and commit adultery and so on. So it's just a kind of circular argument. And so in the end, one is left with only two attitudes that one can take to moral values. Either they're simply expressions of emotion, entirely subjective, that we cannot justify in terms of rational argument, or that is the position of the nihilist, or else, our moral, moral truths, like the Ten Commandments, are simply self-evident truths, what philosophers called axioms. They're self-evidently true. And to not see that they are true is the moral equivalent of being colorblind. Now, most people, the overwhelming majority of the human race, I'm glad to say, are not nihilists. Most people, even 
the hard, most hard-boiled hard atheists, if you really scratch beneath the surface, will agree that it isn't right to torture children and that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong, but they cannot explain where this sense of right and wrong and of good and evil comes from. And so Lewis argued, well, it comes from God. There is this self-existent, eternal goodness out there that influences our moral uh, our moral sense, and that self-existent, eternal goodness is God. And this is what Lewis uh, wrote about it. We have to face the fact that the conflict between the moral law and actual human conduct, between our sense of values and the world in which we live, suggests that our moral sense is not man-made or a product of non-moral, non-rational nature, but an offshoot of some absolute moral wisdom, which is self-existent and therefore divine. And hence he insisted in this lecture on futility and meaninglessness that he gave uh, to Morden College Oxford at the beginning of the war, he wrote, the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. So Lewis abandoned atheism, first of all because atheists have no, uh, their arguments against God based on existence of evil are contradictory, and secondly because they have no explanation of our moral values and the moral sense that we find inside ourselves. Indeed, Lewis argued, atheists cannot account for human consciousness in general, uh, and in particular, atheists cannot explain the religious impulse. Why is it that people have this sense of God or believe that there is a God, that there is something out there that is, not the, that is somehow beyond and behind the physical universe that we see? And one of the things that haunted Lewis as a, as, a, as a boy and as a young man, and I suppose it was sort of God just keeping sort of hold on him without him knowing, was something that he called the inconsolable longing. He described this as, as something that would often come through to him that seemed to come from beyond the world, often communicate, you know, something very beautiful that's communicated through a landscape or an incredibly beautiful piece of music that just lifts you right up into a sphere that isn't normally the one in which you move. And he called that the inconsolable longing. And he basically said, well, where does this come from? What are the implications of feeling the inconsolable longing? And uh, this is what he said on that, subject, uh, on that subject, which I think is really rather interesting. In fact, he wrote this in, in the first quote is in Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How, then in another paper he wrote, how could an idiotic universe have produced creatures whose mere dreams are so much stronger, better, subtler than itself? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? If you really are a product of a materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home there? And then he said again in another paper uh, on the same subject, he, he wrote this, and this is again very interesting. 
Do what they will, then, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? And just at this point, as atheists are saying, oh, well, it's just wishful thinking, he then says this, a man's physical hunger does not prove that that man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some men and women will. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it will be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. So Lewis argued that the very fact that so many people feel what he called the inconsolable longing, sense something beautiful and special and precious that somehow comes to them from beyond the world, through music, through a beautiful landscape, in other ways, the very fact that this exists in the human psyche is something that needs to be explained, and atheists have no explanation for it. He also pointed out that it is extremely arrogant of atheists to dismiss religious belief and belief in God as an illusion when millions of human beings in every culture, in every period of history, of every class and kind, university professors, fishermen, all sorts of different kinds of people have believed in the existence of God and in the existence of a spiritual reality. Lewis argued you cannot simply reject this overwhelming testimony of millions of people down the ages. And a, a rather interesting point he made uh, on this subject is that one of the problems with so many atheists is that they have a very reductionist view of reality. They're a bit like the person who picks up a love letter and analyzes the chemical constituents of the ink and the paper and says that's all there is and missed the greater point that it's actually a love letter. And he used a rather good analogy. He said, if you stand in a, tool, say, in your garden shed uh, on a summer, sunny summer's day and you just leave the door of your shed open a crack and you're inside the shed in the darkness, there's a beam of light that comes into the shed. If you stand in a certain position of the shed, you'll just see the beam of light coming into the woodshed, and that's all you see. But if you stand in the, if you change your position in the woodshed so that the beam of light falls on your eye, you no longer see a beam of light. You see the garden outside the woodshed. You see the branch of a tree waving in the distance. So there's a difference between looking along something, um, looking at something, if you like, and, and actually being inside the experience. And uh, what is the relevance of that? Well, this is what he wrote on this subject. There's a, if you are standing in a... Well, he talk, makes this point about the, 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 the tool. Looking at the, if you look at the beam of light coming through a crack in a door, you see the beam and the specks of dust floating in it and everything else is in darkness. If you then move so that the beam falls on your eyes, you're looking along it, you see something different. No longer the beam itself but a glimpse of green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside the shed and beyond that the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at it are very different experiences. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. 
Her voice reminds him of something he's been trying to remember all his life, and ten minutes' casual chat with her is more precious than all the favours that all other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. Now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. For him, it's all an affair of the young man's genes and a recognised biological stimulus. That is the difference between looking along the sexual impulse and looking at it. As soon as you've grasped this simple distinction, Lewis wrote, it raises a question. You get one experience of a thing when you look along it and another when you look at it, which is the true or valid experience, which tells you most about the thing. And you can hardly ask that question without noticing that for the last 50 years or so, everyone has been taking the answer for granted. It has been assumed without discussion that if you want the true account of religion, you mustn't go to religious people. Oh, no. You must go to anthropologists. That if you want the true account of sexual love, you must go not to lovers, but to psychologists. That if you want to understand some ideology, such as medieval chivalry, or the 19th century idea of a gentleman, you must listen not to those who lived inside those ideals, but to sociologists. Now, Lewis realised that this doesn't mean that the inside view of a love affair or religion is always or necessarily correct or true. We can be deceived by our emotions, by other people, and by our experiences. But to discount for all those reasons all inside experiences is untenable. And as he went on to say... You discount them in order to think more accurately. But you can't think at all, and therefore you can't, of course, think accurately if you have nothing to think about. A physiologist, for example, can study pain and find out that it is, whatever is means, such and such neural events in the brain. But the word pain would have no meaning for him unless he had been inside by actually suffering. If he had never looked along pain, he simply wouldn't know what he was looking at. And I'm afraid so many uh, modern scholars and academics who look at religion simply don't know, quite literally, what they're talking about and writing about. So Lewis argued atheists cannot use the existence of evil as an argument against the existence of God. They cannot explain the existence of the moral law on our conscience. They cannot explain the religious impulse. They cannot explain why so many millions of people uh, have believed in God and do believe in God, uh, something which transcends all cultures and ages and age groups. Nor, nor, he argued, can atheists explain other areas of human consciousness. They cannot explain how we have free will, how we're able to think and reason and make choices. Now, this is a slightly harder argument than some of the others, so rather than try and sort of talk to you about it, I'm just going to read something. I I wrote a philosophical paper partly on this, and I I had really thought through this argument on paper, so I'm going to read from it. Atheism's failure to do justice to the religious impulse is but part of its more general inability to account for or make sense of human consciousness in general. To be specific, it cannot offer a convincing explanation of our experience of free will or our ability to reason and obtain knowledge. Take the issue of free will, our ability to make choices first. There are scientific determinists, like the late B.F. Skinner, 
who deny its reality, who say that we don't have free will, it's just an illusion. But the evidence that we do have free will, that we really are able to make choices, is overwhelming. Our freedom to choose is not only confirmed by our own internal experience of weighing alternatives and deciding between options, whether this involves selecting food from a restaurant menu or changing jobs. It is also presupposed by the very nature of all argument and debate, since there is no point in engaging in philosophical discussions or any arguments of any kind if we're not free to examine, accept or reject a particular chain of reasoning. Indeed, it is precisely here that determinism, the idea that we don't have any free choice, undermines its own intellectual credentials most thoroughly. For if it applies to human thought as well as action, it means that the reasonings of determinists, of those who deny free will, are themselves, like everyone else's, inevitable. But if the belief of determinists, of people who say we have no free will, if that belief is inevitable, how do we know that it's true? It has on their own assumptions no more validity than the conclusions of their philosophical opponents. So we have to assume that we do have free will because if, if we deny it, it makes nonsense of, 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 of the process of argument, including the discussion of determinism. However, our ability to think, to, to choose, has implications. If our belief that we have free will is well-founded, how can that be reconciled with a philosophical with a physical determinism implicit in atheism. How can we be free to think and choose, decide and act, if we are nothing more than complicated biochemical machines put together by chance in an accidental universe? On atheistic premises that there's no God, all our thoughts and choices, including our belief in the rules of logic, are simply the end result of a long, long chain of non-rational causes. How then can we trust any of our reasonings, including the arguments supporting atheism? As Lewis put it in a paper that he read to the Oxford Socratic Club in 1944, if minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. So he, he concluded that our minds and our capacity to be free agents must be at least partially dependent or fed on or fed by some creative, self-existent, eternal reason and intelligence outside the physical order of our brains and the material universe. That's the hardest of all Lewis's arguments against atheism, but I make no apology for going into it in front of you because it's a very valuable one. And it's actually, the reason I say I, I, I went into it is the argument that converted me from being an atheist. That is the argument. I read Miracles, which is the book that, in which he deploys this argument at great detail, and I was not an atheist after I'd read the first ten pages of that. Atheism also cannot explain, Lewis argued, the existence and order of the universe. It cannot explain the existence of the universe because something cannot come from nothing. Nothing cannot produce something. Therefore, for anything to exist, it must either have always existed and be eternal, or else it must be the creational product of something else or someone else that, that or who is eternal and self-existent. And the universe 
since organic life um, uh, is, is born and dies and there's constant change in the inorganic world, there's a constant process of change, one thing caused by another, caused by another, caused by another, even if you have that chain in all infinity, even if you think the universe has always existed, the whole chain of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, cannot explain itself. The existence of the whole chain cannot explain itself. Therefore, it must be the creation of a self-existent being, an eternal, unchanging being who is God. And if you look at the course of the, uh, if you look at the, the structure of the, why are there any scientific laws? It's, if, if, if life is accidental and there's no God, why, the, the idea that there is a universe with a few uh, simple laws of physics is completely improbable. It's overwhelmingly improbable that there would be any scientific laws. Secondly, look at, look at creation, look at nature, look at the, the, the instinct that birds have to create nests, or, or the way whales feed their young, or the way you have birds who are adapted to diving into the sea uh, and catching fish and at the same time can fly. Uh, or, or look at uh, other things, look at the human body, the, the chemical factory of the human liver, the capacity of the human body to heal itself, the existence of, of, na of antibodies produced by the body in response to disease. All these things uh, speak of design and order and intelligence in creation. How can one believe, therefore, that the universe is somehow accidental and there is no God? Secondly, science cannot, Lewis argued, science cannot... Uh, disprove or, or make or, or refute the possibility of miracles. And in his book, Miracles, which came out in 1947, he went into this in great detail. He said one of the reasons so many people won't accept the gospel is because they don't believe that the miraculous, the supernatural, is possible. And the first reason they don't believe is because they argue in a circle. There was a 18th century philosopher called David Hume, who was an atheist and who's been very influential on the development of philosophy in Britain, and he argued that, uh, oh, there can't be any miracles because we know that there are universal natural laws, scientific laws, which never change. So if somebody comes along and says, oh, a miracle has taken place in Newcastle, it's bound to be untrue. But, of course, that argument is completely circular because the argument that scientific laws or natural laws are never interrupted is itself the assertion that there can never be a miracle, and that's simply an assertion. It involves a circular process of reasoning. Furthermore, secondly, the very fact that there are any natural laws or scientific laws, as Lewis argued, cannot be explained unless you, unless you, uh, unless you posit the existence of God. <coughs> natural laws designed in nature implies the existence of an intelligent creator. But if there is an intelligent creator, if God exists, and it's obviously absurd to say he cannot suspend or interrupt the laws he has created. So when you look more closely at the atheist arguments against miracles, they simply collapse. And he pointed out, um, quoting uh, a, professor, a man called Professor Whitehead, who was a well-known scientist and, and natural theologian in the early part of the 20th century. Professor Whitehead points out, Lewis wrote, that centuries of belief in a God who combined the personal energy of Jehovah with the rationality of a Greek philosopher first produced the firm expectation of systematic order which rendered possible the birth of modern science. In other words, he says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. And then we come to Christ's miracles. 
So not only are miracles possible, Lewis argued, but if you actually look at the nature of Christ's miracles, they're very, very significant. And this is what he said on the subject of Christ's miracles, the miracles recorded in the New Testament. He said, they're not the sort of supernatural events you read about in fairy tales. Beasts turning into men, talking trees, magic rings, water to... What, 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 you, what we read instead of Christ's miracles in the New Testament is of water turning into wine, a few loaves and fishes feeding thousands, miracles which represent a speeding up and localization of what usually occurs gradually and generally in nature. So this is how he put it. God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into a juice which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus every year from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. That men fail to see. Either, like the pagans, they refer the process to some finite spirit, Bacchus or Dionysus, or else, like the moderns, they attribute real and ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomena which are all that our senses can discover in it. But when Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. The miracle has only half its effect if it only convinces us that Christ is God. It will have its full effect if whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party in Cana. That same mysterious energy, which we call gravitational when it steers the planets and biochemical when it heals a body, is the efficient cause of all recoveries. And if God exists, that energy directly or indirectly is his. All who are cured are cured by him, the healer within. But once he did it visibly, a man meeting a man in ancient Palestine. So God exists. Miracles are possible. Christ's miracles are not only possible, but exactly the sort of thing you would have expected from God the Son incarnate walking among us. The other reason that Lewis became a Christian is that all explanations of evil and suffering, the existence of evil and suffering, other than the Christian one, don't make sense. We've already talked about atheism. Um, two other alternative explanations also don't make sense. One of them is dualism, um, Zoroastrianism, which was the ancient uh, religion of Persia, ancient Persia. That idea that lots of people have, that there is a e good power and a bad power. There are these two equal warring powers, good and evil, fighting for mastery in the universe. And that explains the, the evil is created by the evil power. Uh, and that's why we have evil. But Lewis argued that how do we know which power, which side we ought to be on? How do we know that one power is good and one power is evil if we're not judging those two powers by some standard external to them? So dualism doesn't make sense because obviously the standard of good is supreme. Goodness, therefore, must be original and evil secondary. And in fact, Lewis argued that evil really was only spoiled goodness rooted in rebellion against God. And again, I think a quote brings this out very well. The same point, this comes from mere Christianity, can be made in a different way. If dualism is true, 
then the bad power must be a being who likes badness for its own sake. But in reality, we have no experience of anyone liking badness just because it is bad. The nearest we can get to it is in cruelty. But in real life, people are cruel for one or two reasons. Either because they are sadists, that is because they have a sexual perversion, which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure to them, or else for the sake of something they're going to get out of it, money or power or safety. But pleasure, money, power and safety are all as far as they go good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. Hence the inherent sense of the idea of the fallen angel, the rebellious Lucifer, that there was no evil in the beginning. Evil comes out of rebellion against God. And, of course, what makes evil possible is the gift of free will. God has given men and angels free will, and with it the terrible opportunity of rejecting him and setting their wills against his. And this is again what he did, this is what he's also said about it in mere Christianity. Some people think that they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water, and for that they must be free. And what was so interesting about Lewis's work and about the man is that he understood uh, the essence of evil, and he understood the essence of evil simply to be the rejection of the Creator, that here we are, created by God, whether we're men or angels. God is the source, the fountain of all life, all beauty, all love, all truth. And to reject him, to turn against him, is like a plant refusing to grow towards the sunlight. That is the essence and the root of evil and of pride. And because he understood this so, and he, unforgettably in his he wrote a preface to Milton's Paradise Lost. And in this preface to Milton's Paradise Lost, he describes the way Milton portrays Lucifer, Satan, the rebellious angel. And he says, in a world of song and dance and feasting, all he could think about was his own prestige. So Lewis understood the fall. He understood uh, psychological resistance to God. And the two ingredients he identified in resistance to God as one, the desire that people have to be in control of their own lives, to do what they want, to be independent, to be autonomous, not to be accountable to their creator. And the other one is the fear of the incalculable consequences of surrendering your whole being, your whole self, your whole life to the creator, to the God who made you and to whom you belong. 
And he conveys that very clearly um, in something he wrote again in Mere Christianity. The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially this natural self in us wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It is afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it is quite right. It knows that the spiritual life, if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it is ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. And he also wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, again on the same issue. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the centre is open to it. This sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants, as well as by sophisticated persons, by solitaries, no less than by those who live in society. It is the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life. The basic sin behind all particular sins. At this very moment, you and I are either committing it or about to commit it or repenting it. Well, Lewis was an honest man and he came to understand that, the, that God existed and that God had demands to make on his life. And what is so interesting about Lewis's conversion to Christianity is it was entirely unwilling. This is what he wrote in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, Magdalen College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And he always said, subsequent to that experience, that he always, although the experience was painful at the time, he was grateful for it because it was rather hard to believe that it's wishful thinking when it's something that you didn't wish for. <laughs> And finally, I just want to, what I want to spend the last part of my talk on is just talking about some of Lewis's fiction. He came to realize, of course, that fear of surrendering to God is ridiculous. God is self-giving, creative love. He's wholly good. He's perfect in beauty, infinitely joyful, loving and wise. He's our creator. He's the fountain of life, of love and truth. He's the source, the origin of all our life creativity and happiness. And Lewis's knowledge of God and of Christ and his portrayal of God's goodness and beauty and love and joyousness is actually best expressed not in his works of theology but in his fiction, especially in his Chronicles of Narnia. And I, th and, uh, I thought I'd just read you some extracts from some of these stories because they are so beautiful. And the first thing to say about the Chronicles of Narnia, of course. I don't know, have you all read the Chronicles of Narnia? Did you all read them in your childhood? Or do you reread them now as adults? I read them often. 
Um, you know what Narnia is, and you know, most of you, I assume, will know that Aslan the lion is Christ. And it's a rather interesting um, image for Christ, because Aslan is the king of the beasts, the lion is the king of the beasts, you know, in sort of Western folklore. So he's one of the beasts, he's one of the animals, but he's the king. And um, he's, of course, majestic and powerful. And in Lewis's books, there are amazing, uh, in, amazing portrayals, really, of God. And, and, and there's a very powerful portrayal of God the Creator in The Magician's Nephew, the founding of Narnia. Now, we started this evening's proceedings after we'd sung the hymn with um, that wonderful opening at the beginning of John's Gospel about um, the word of God through which the whole world was made, through whom which we were made. Well, in The Magician's Nephew, as you will remember, Narnia is created by Aslan's song. Here is a quote. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he'd called up the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass. Soon there were other things besides grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Diggory didn't know what they were until one began coming up quite close to him. It was a little spiky thing that threw out dozens of arms and covered these arms with green and grew larger at the rate of about an inch every two seconds. There were dozens of these things all round him now. When they were nearly as tall as himself, he saw what they were. Trees, he exclaimed. A little further along in the creation narrative. And again, remember the opening of Genesis. God, let there be light. And there was light. The word of God. Here, the song of God, if you like. The song of the lion. And now for the first time, the lion was quite silent. He was going to and fro among the animals. And every now and then he would go up to two of them. Always two at a time. And touch their noses with his. He would touch two beavers among all the beavers, two leopards among all the leopards, one stag and one deer among all the deer, and leave the rest. Some sorts of animals he passed over altogether, but the pairs which he had touched instantly left their own kinds and followed him. At last he stood still, and all the creatures whom he had touched came and stood in a wide circle around him. The others whom he had not touched began to wander away. Their noises faded gradually into the distance." The chosen beasts who remained were now utterly silent, all with their eyes fixed intently upon the lion. The cat-like ones gave an occasional twitch of the tail, but otherwise all was still. For the first time that day, there was complete silence, except for the noise of running water. Diggory's heart beat wildly. He knew something very solemn was going to be done. He had not forgotten about his mother, who was dying. But he knew jolly well that even for her he couldn't interrupt a thing like this. The lion, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he was going to burn them up with his mere stare. And gradually a change came over them. The smaller ones, the rabbits, moles and such like, grew a good deal larger. The very big ones, you noticed it most with the elephants, grew a little smaller. Many animals sat up on their hind legs. Most put their heads on one side as if they were trying very hard to understand. 
The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways the line of trees. Far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky which hid them, the stars sang again. A pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody, either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. Creatures, I give you yourselves, said the strong, happy voice of Aslan. I give you forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers. I give you the stars, and I give you myself. The dumb beasts whom I have not chosen are yours also. Treat them gently and cherish them, but do not go back to their ways, lest you cease to be talking beasts. For out of them you were taken, and into them you can return. Do not do so. And I will read another very beautiful passage from a, another uh, of Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. This is really about the resurrection, about the lion as Christ, the life, the resurrection and the life. At the end of the silver chair, towards the end of the silver chair, um, the children, Jill and Eustace, have seen uh, King Caspian die having greeted his long-lost son, Prince Rillian, whom they had rescued from enchantment. But Caspian is dead. I wish I was at home, said Jill. Eustace nodded, saying nothing, and bit his lip. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself, so bright and real and strong, that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill forgot about the dead king of Narnia, and remembered only how she had made Eustace fall over the cliff and how she'd helped to muff nearly all the signs and about all the snappings and quarrelings. Interesting, the presence of God makes you aware of what's wrong with you. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she couldn't speak. Then the lion drew them towards him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue and said, Think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. Please, Aslan, said Jill, may we go home now? Yes, I have come to bring you home, said Aslan. Then he opened his mouth wide and blue. But this time they had no sense of flying through the air. Instead, it seemed that they remained still, and the wild breath of Aslan blew away the ship and the dead king and the castle and the snow and the winter sky. For all these things floated off into the air like wreaths of smoke. And suddenly they were standing in the great brightness of midsummer sunshine, on smooth turf, among mighty trees, and beside a fair, fresh stream. Then they saw that they were once more on a mountain of Aslan, high up above and beyond the end of that world in which Narnia lies. But the strange thing was that the funeral music for King Caspian still went on, though no one could tell where it came from. They were walking beside the stream, and the lion went before them, and he became so beautiful and the music so despairing that Jill didn't know which of them it was that filled her eyes with tears. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream, and there on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him 
like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in the water, in it like water weed. And all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept. Great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. And Jill noticed that Eustace looked like neither a child crying nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. At least that's the nearest she could get to it. But really, as she said, people don't seem to have any particular age on that mountain. Son of Adam, said Aslan, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pad towards Eustace. Must I, said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad, and there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness that you've ever seen or imagined, and it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the doleful music stopped, and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to grey, and from grey to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether, and his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed, and suddenly he leapt up and stood before them, a very young man, or a boy, but Jill couldn't say which because of people having no particular ages in Aslan's country. Even in this world, of course, it's the stupidest children who are most childish and the stupidest grown-ups who are most grown-up. And he rushed to Aslan, and flung his arms as far as they would go around the huge neck, and he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king, and Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last Caspian turned to the others. He gave a great laugh of astonished joy. Why, Eustace, he said, Eustace, so you did reach the end of the world after all. What about my second best sword that you broke on the sea serpent? Eustace made a step towards him with both hands held out, but then drew back with a somewhat startled expression. Uh, look here, I, I say, he stammered. It, it's all very well, but I mean, aren't you? I mean, didn't you? Oh, don't be such an ass, said Caspian. But, said Eustace, looking at Aslan, hasn't he, hasn't he died? Yes, said the lion, in a very quiet voice. Almost Jill thought as if he were laughing. He has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. There are very few who haven't. And I will end on... Uh, on these readings from the Narnia stories with a wonderful challenge, really, about loving God. I don't know how many of you remember Reepy Cheap, Reepy Cheap, the great talking mouse of Narnia. Anyway, Reepy Cheap in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where he sails with Prince Caspian, as, King Caspian when he was young, and Eustace and so on, sailed to the end of the world. And Aslan tells Caspian that he has to come back to, to Narnia because he's king and he has his responsibilities for his own people. But beyond the end of the world is Aslan's world, Aslan's mountain. And Reepy Cheap, the mouse, wants to go to Aslan's country. And he says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. 
I ought to say this in a squeaky voice, but I thought I won't inflict this on you. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise and pee-pee-cheek will be the head of the talking mice in Narnia. And a little later on, they get near there. And it, it, it's written. But now they could look at the rising sun and see it clearly and see things beyond it. What they saw eastward beyond the sun was a range of mountains. It was so high that either they never saw the top of it or they forgot it. None of them remembers seeing any sky in that direction. And the mountains must really have been outside the world. For any mountains, even a quarter or twentieth of that height ought to have had ice and snow on them. But these were warm and green and full of forests and waterfalls, however high you looked. And suddenly there came a breeze from the east, tossing the top of the wave into foamy shapes and ruffling the smooth water all round them. It lasted only a second or so, but what it brought them in that second, none of those three children will ever forget. It brought both a smell and a sound, a musical sound. Edmund and Eustace would never talk about it afterwards. Lucy could only say, it would break your heart. Why, said I, was it so sad? Sad, no, said Lucy. No one in that boat doubted that they were seeing beyond the end of the world into Aslan's country, into heaven. At that moment, with a crunch, the boat ran aground. The water was too shallow now even for it. This, said Reepy Cheap, is where I go on alone. They didn't even try to stop him, for everything now felt as if it had been fated or had happened before. They helped him to lower his little coracle. Then he took off his sword. I shall need it no more, he said, and flung it far away across the lilied sea. Where it fell, it stood upright with a hilt above the surface. Then he bade them goodbye, trying to be sad for their sakes, but he was quivering with happiness. Lucy, for the first and last time, did what she had always wanted to do, taking him in her arms and caressing him. Then hastily he got into his coracle and took his paddle, and the current caught it, and away he went, very black against the lilies. But no lilies grew on the wave. It was a smooth green slope. The coracle went on. More and more quickly and beautifully it rushed up the wave's side. For one split second they saw its shape and reapy cheeps on the very top. Then it vanished, and since that moment no one can truly claim to have seen reapy cheap the mouse. But my belief is that he came safe to Aslan's country and is alive there to this day. And so I end. Are you like Reepy Cheep? Is your heart like Reepy Cheep's? If not, why not? Thank you very much indeed, Philip. Uh, and we're going to uh, do what we normally do, is have a very, very short break, uh, and then I hope there are lots of points and questions uh, that people want to put to Philip. So just for a minute, we'll take a break. Um, as I say, the doors are locked, but you can't get out, but you, you can't really leave the room, nor should you, but um, just talk to, to your neighbor if you want to for a moment or two. You've had a lot to say. That means you've got a lot to ask, I hope. So uh, can I uh, just remind you of our procedure? which is that the questions that you have or the statement you have must be placed into the microphone, which Mr. Dobson here will carry around with him. It's very important, despite what I said last week, some people very eagerly grasp the microphone, and that has distorted to a degree 
the question. So can you please refrain from grasping, squeezing, or doing anything else with it other than to speak into it. And you don't have to speak any louder than you would normally be speaking. But please, could you do as you're asked to do? Uh, so would anyone like to uh, make their first observation or question, please? I'm very aware there are people sitting in the recess might not be hear anything of what I've said, or I hope that they heard something of what was said in the course of the evening. But please feel in the recesses as well and outside, you're welcome to ask questions. Anyone want to say something first of all? Well, it's, it's not a statement, it's a question, really. It was... Um, you spoke about how C.S. Lewis came to the, the inescapable conclusion that there is a supreme being. And I suppose once you've come to that conclusion, the next question is, what is this being like and how can we know him? And I just wondered how, how Lewis would answer that question. This is sort of, if I could get you know, exactly the right answer to this question, I could perhaps take over the church. Um, uh, so... Watch out, George Curry. I think that what he would have said, you know, he would have started very practically in saying, ask God to reveal himself to you personally. And he would, um, he would certainly have said that. Um, I, in all I can speak of is my own experience. When I was in, I had a strange experience. When I was an atheist, I started reading C.S. Lewis and um, coming to the conclusion there was a God um, and I prayed to God, and uh, you know, some years now, so I'd, it's hard to remember with absolute accuracy. Um, but it was when I actually prayed to, to Christ, to Jesus, to reveal Himself to me, that the full revelation came. That that encounter came. I think that was already the fact that I thought of praying to Jesus was, I suppose, an answer to the first prayer I had prayed to God to reveal Himself to me. To ask Christ to reveal himself, you know, the, the God who walked among us, the God who was man and who is man, the God who came down to us to be with us and show the face of the Father. As, as Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So just ask God to reveal himself. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. And God knows you, you see. Jesus knows you. He knows what makes you tick and how to get through to you. So it's a very practical prayer. That's what I would say, and I think that's what he would have said. I mean, Lewis, I should, I should add, that, you know, Lewis didn't... He, the process of his conversion was, you know, more gradual. I mean, it's hard to convey everything that there is to say about him in a, in a lecture. It was more gradual than perhaps might have appeared from what I said. But he, he records at one stage not only this experience of feeling the approach of God and not, you know, not wanting him, Previous to that, and I suppose it was partly the experience of feeling his approach. He, he talks about having been on a bus ride, bus trip somewhere, you know, double-decker bus, and um, he was on the top deck, and he just suddenly felt it was as if God was saying to him, put up your gun so that we can talk, you know, stop being on the defensive all the time, you know. So, yeah. Thank you. Are you going to ask a question? Well, it'll have to be into the microphone. In a century of um, liberalism and modernism, I wonder whether you could just comment briefly on Lewis's 
view of scripture how conservative was he he was conservative about the New Testament and he was very scathing about um, what he called sort of you know liberal modernist um, theologians in fact he gave a paper to um, a theological college called well it was re- it was published under the title Fern Seeds and Elephants um, it was a rather strange title. Basically, he was saying modern theologians argue about the seeds and they can't see an elephant at three paces. And <laughs> what he basically was arguing in that paper was that, again and again, the sort of modern liberal biblical critics simply assume that the miraculous supernatural isn't possible. And then they, having, they come with that mindset to the text. And then, of course, they, they'll, they'll, since they don't believe the miracle, stories can be taken you know, as read. Um, they invent all sorts of fanciful explanations as to what really happened and who relied on what authority and source. And so he was very scathing about, about um, uh, you know, he was very orthodox in his view of the New Testament. He was less orthodox in his view of the Old Testament. I think wrongly. I think he should have been more orthodox about the Old Testament. Uh, but he, you know, he 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 came out of atheism and at a time when. It was very difficult to do so, and um, the journey he made really was a very great one. Um, and certainly, he's very good on the New Testament. Any evidence that he read Thomas Aquinas, because he gave the great proofs for the existence of God, the five proofs? Yeah. Any evidence he studied them? Yes, Lewis did, because he, one of his degrees, one of the first-class honours he got was in philosophy, classics and philosophy. So he, would have, he studied all the great philosophers, Aquinas, Aristotle, and in fact he taught philosophy um, as well as English. Um, he taught greats in his early years as a young don. So yes, he knew he'd read them all. In fact, he, was, he, had, he practically there was nothing he hadn't read. He had an amazing, he had a phenomenal memory. I mean, he could pick out a book, you know, and, and just remember. Uh, he had a photographic memory almost. He could just remember things. Miss Towns has a question. If one knew nothing about C.S. Lewis, would you recommend what you think is the best book to read about him? Not his autobiography. His, aut- his autobiography is, well, surpri- Well, it depends on who you are and your interests and so on. I mean, yes, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, is, is very good. Some, some bits in it are slightly difficult. But um, the best biography, actually, is the first one that was written of him by his friends um, Walter Hooper and Roger Lancelin Green. Um, it, you, just Hooper and Green that's the name of the authors their biography of Lewis they were friends of Lewis and they're the, that's the most reliable I mean A.N. Wilson wrote a book about C.S. Lewis but it's not very accurate but the Hooper and Green one which was the first one is that's a good so if you want to read about his life and also yeah, try his autobiography Surprised by Joy Philip, did you see the Hollywood movie Shadowlands? Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, was it in any way accurate? 
uh, and what was wrong with it. Uh, thank you. Can we all hear the question? The question was, did you see Shadowlands? Was it accurate, truthful, or was it a distortion? I think that was the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, uh, well, for those of, I presume, I don't know whether everyone has seen Shadowlands, either on television or there was a series, Joss Ackland played C.S. Lewis in a television version and also the film version with um, Anthony Hopkins. Um, and, of course, it's, as you know, it's a story of how Lewis met and, and, and uh, fell in love with his, his wife, this New York, Jewish New Yorker who'd been a communist and an atheist and had been converted by his books. Well, it, it, <laughs> It's a mixed answer. I mean, the broad portrayal of the, the relationship that Lewis had with Joy Davidman, as her maiden name was, uh, and, and the marriage, so that is basically accurate. It, it, the basic substance of it is accurate. Um, Joy Davidman in real life was not as beautiful as Deborah Winger. <laughs> and um, and uh, Anthony, and Anthony uh, Hopkins, although, I mean, he, he didn't try to give me due. He, he said he didn't try to play Lewis as, you know, Lewis was portrayed to be, sort of did his own interpretation. Um, and that wasn't really very accurate. Lewis was a very big man, very red-faced, very big shoulders. Um, somebody said, you, you know, you might have thought he was the sort of really low, friendly local butcher, you know, really tough sort of... <laughs> bloke, um, and, and he had a booming voice, and he was, very, he was a very sort of man full of life, you know, he, liked, he loved to go on long walks, he, he, you know, he enjoyed his food and his wine, Tolkien complains of Lewis having taken him off on walking holidays, and of them walking 25 miles with a heavy pack on their backs, you know, and Tolkien thought this was a bit much, and decided to scale down his walking relationship with, with Lewis. So, so Lewis was full of life, very energetic, and, and, and so much more, much more lively character than Anthony Hopkins portrays him as. Joss Ackland's portrayal is more accurate. Uh, but broadly speaking, Shadow, it's slightly romanticised, but broadly speaking, it's correct. The, the, the area where it's most wrong, I mean, the script was written by a non-Christian. And in Shadowlands, you know, you see Lewis... Um, grief-stricken by his wife's death. And it slightly leaves hazy as to what happened to his faith afterwards. His wife died in 1960, um, and Lewis then died in 63. But in fact, Lewis, you know, Lewis's faith recovered, um, and he in fact wrote a diary of his grief called A Grief Observed. And then he published it, he sent it to a publisher. It was a kind of diary as it was happening, as he was grieving. He wrote this diary. And it was sent to his publishers under a pseudonym. And somebody in the publishing house recognized his handwriting, said, we must publish this, this is Lewis's, but we will respect his desire for privacy. And so it was published under a pseudonym. And it was, it's such a strong, it's such an honest, strong and comforting book that lots of friends and acquaintances who didn't know he'd written the book bought gift copies of this and sent it to him <laughs> to comfort him. Now, that shows the measure... That shows the greatness of the man, you know, that he could produce that kind of book. Um, and he wrote, and his last book he wrote um, shortly before he died, I think it was published posthumously, was Letters from Malcolm, chiefly about prayer. It's perfectly obvious reading that, that he'd never, he never lost it. This idea that he lost his faith isn't true. He just suffered unbearable pain. And in the, in the middle of that pain, you know, he, 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 he expressed, if you like, 
not doubts about God, but about God's, as we all are when we suffer, about God's goodness and love. That's where we, and funnily enough, that, you know, the thing that first made me a, ready to read Lewis's theological works was that he wrote a, he wrote a, he wrote, he gave a paper to the Oxford Socratic Club in the 1940s called On Obstinacy in Belief. Now, before reading that paper, when I was an atheist, I, one of my reasons for rejecting belief in God and religion was I felt that, um, you know, we shouldn't have blind faith, shouldn't just jump in, in the dark, shouldn't just, you know, you should only believe something because you're really convinced it's true. You shouldn't just sort of take a risk. And in this essay, he talks, uh, what Lewis writes about uh, when he talks about faith is that the, the, the admonitions to us in the Bible to have faith, to trust God, are addressed to people who already know that God exists and believe in him and love him. They're admonitions to Christians to hold on to what they know of the character of God, to take them through whatever perplexing or terrible trial they're going through, that there's a loving God in control of it all and it's not the end of the story, whatever you're going through at this particular moment. So Lewis understood all about that and it was one of the reasons I became a Christian. You know, I thought, ah, oh, this is an honest guide. And the fact that he had such grief and he wrote about it and he didn't hide it you know, it's a great witness to Christ. And it's a great book. You must read it. If you, well, if you're suffering, people are really suffering bereavement or any great trial, a grief observed, which is now, you know, it's been out in paperback under his own name, um, you know, for years, is worth reading. Or if you can't find it in the bookshop, get it out of a library. In the current media, the comparisons are being made between the Harry Potter phenomenon and um, the C.S. Lewis's stories for children. Do you have a comment? I haven't read any of the Harry Potter, and I just wondered if... The question is a, a comparison between C.S. Lewis and Harry Potter. For those of you who don't know who Harry Potter is, I believe it's a, a book and a film, and it's currently in vogue and being plugged very, very strongly by the media. Have you seen it already? No, I, I, I want to see it. I want to see the, the, the film. I haven't read her books, actually. I haven't read the books, so I can't... I, mean, I know about them, and I know bit, roughly what they're about, but I wouldn't really want... I can't give a proper answer because I ought to read them first. Um, my impression, there are... My, my only slight anxiety about it is that um, in an age and in a culture where there's much greater interest in the occult than there was 40 years ago... I think there's, it's possibly dangerous to not make, you know, to, I mean, the whole, I mean, you know, basically Harry Potter's a sort of, you know, you're introduced to the idea of sort of good wizardry, good wizards and bad wizards. Um, now, in the Narnia stories, you never meet a good witch. They're all evil. You know, the, the, the battle lines, the black and white, is much more clearly drawn. Um, so arguably... You know the, the the Harry Potter books may be a little bit ambivalent uh, in a in a dangerous way, um, but I, do, I, you know, I I I wouldn't like. I mean, I would never. You know, I wouldn't write an article about it. I wouldn't make any public comment about it because I haven't read the book and I need to read it first. I'm sure. It, I'm sure they're very good books, um, but there may be a, there may be risks involved. I, I don't know. There's a gentleman at the end there. This will have to be the last question, I'm afraid. Uh, you've mentioned about, uh, 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 talked a lot about C.S. Lewis and atheism. D did he say much about other religions? Yes, he did. Well, not, not very much. He said that one of the 
results of him becoming a Christian and abandoning atheism was that he could take a slightly more generous-minded and liberal view of other religions in the sense that, I think to sum up his attitude, he believed that, that God had spoken to the human race. Um, you know, everybody or most people, most cultures and races have had some intimation of God, some knowledge of him. Um, but, but how accurate that knowledge of God, undistorted, uncorrupted it was, it obviously varied. Obviously, you know, he would have argued strongly that, that Christianity was, in inverted commas, a true religion, otherwise he wouldn't have been a Christian. I mean, obviously, the very, if you're a Christian, you automat- you're obviously saying that wherever, whenever Christianity disagrees with other religions, the Christian view must be the correct one, otherwise you wouldn't be a Christian. Um, so he would have said that. Um, I think something, yes, one of the, yes, I didn't mention this in my talk. One of the reasons he became a Christian was that in having conversations about pagan myths with friends like Tolkien, you know, author of Lord of the Rings and so on, and other experts on mythology and, and, and fairy stories, was that Tolkien put it to him when he was still an, when Lewis was still an atheist, that Okay, so the Christian story might appear to have some of the same features as pagan myths about dying and rising gods, you know, associated with the growth of corn and things like that. But that didn't mean that um, because of the similarity between the Christian story and some of these pagan myths, that therefore the Christian story wasn't true because there was the way Lewis interpreted it was that it was as if God sent the human race good dreams. And then there suddenly came that moment when myth became fact. So he had a quite a liberal, large-minded view towards other religions, but he would never have compromised on the fact that, that you know, that the, the, the final, true, crystal clear, right revelation of God is Christianity. He wouldn't have compromised on that. 